Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, today we'll be talking to Setian Davados and Matthew Harvey about their new book, Mag Merlin's Unsolved Mathematical Mysteries. 16 of today's great, greatest unsolved mathematical puzzles in a story-driven, illustrated volume that invites readers to peek over the edge of the unknown. Most people think of mathematics as a set of useful tools designed to answer analytical questions, beginning with simple arithmetic and ending with advanced calculus. But as Mag Merlin's Unsolved Mathematical Mysteries shows, Mathematics is filled with intriguing mysteries that take us to the age of the unknown. This richly illustrated, story-driven volume presents 16 of today's greatest unsolved mathematical puzzles, all understandable by anyone with elementary math skills. These intriguing mysteries are presented to readers as puzzles that have time-traveled from Camelot, preserved in the notebook of Merlin, the wise magician in King Arthur's court. Well, Setian, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global pandemic recently, and we're still in the midst of it, really, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting, how has it affected you and your work? And also maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. And we're going to start with Sethian. Uh, yeah, that's a very difficult. Uh, <laughs> it's a very difficult topic overall. I think to me, two things. One, in terms of teaching and just being in front of students all the time, everything is done digitally. So the chance to know a person as a human is very different. You know, the the small cough that somebody makes in the classroom, the way they look at you, or the confusion in their faces, most likely when I'm teaching, uh, to uh, you know, shuffling of the feet to how they get to meet each other after class. All of those things have been replaced by these small boxes on our on our monitor. So the way you learn um, as a whole person has has just been replaced with kind of downloading information. So I think the most difficult thing as a teacher has been has been that piece of the puzzle is just I don't see my students as humans, and I'm excited to be with them in person again. And Matt, I, I would. I would say the same same thing for me. You know, um, teaching is very much sort of a, a matter of interacting with students, and that's sort of been cut off in a way. I mean, we've we've done the best we could with all these these digital tools, but it just doesn't replace the person on person interactions that you know uh, you come to expect. I feel like it's been kind of a step backward for me uh, to those old days when it was just a teacher standing in front of a, a board and and lecturing without any regard for what the students <laughs> are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's sort of what I ended up going back to often this last year. So I'm hopeful that next year things will be more more normal. Yeah, Galina, you know, one of the things, just to jump in, uh, the, the, the part for research for me, you know, other than just teaching as, as mathematicians, we're thinking about new math. I think we'll talk about that a little bit today. But um, I think a lot of the work about research has been based on things we've done years ago. In other words, invested investments we've made. 
Like if you go to a conference or if you see people in person, that's when the relationships happen when you have a cup of coffee with them and you have a meal with them and then you start thinking about an idea. And I think I have been productive as a researcher in the past few years, but they're all based on conversations from five, six years ago. Mm. So I think... I think it's it's basically all the soils, nutrients have been used up. <laughs> and unless we meet again in person, you know, these new ideas, it's hard to come by because that's that's how you really have great conversation. It's not to send emails back and forth, but to sit with somebody, take out a piece of paper, start drawing things. And even Matt and I, you know, the work we've been doing is, is kind of based on those physical things that we would do and share with each other. Um, and anyway, it's, it's just, uh, I think there are a lot of consequences that have come out of this. That's a great point. So you sort of miss out on a bit more of this creative collaboration. Is exactly. that the case with you, Matt, as well? Yes. Although I'm, I'm a little bit more disconnected from that side of things than, than Sathian is, but it affected me as well. Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourselves? Uh, yeah, let me start. Um, I, I was born and raised in India. Uh, in Madurai, which is a, a city in, in the south side of India. And I, I came to the, to the U.S. around eight years old. Uh, when I was around eight years old, my, both my parents were academic. So I grew up in a very academically intense family. And I was expected uh, as a kid to get a Ph.D., just like most people are expected to go to fourth grade or fifth standard. I, I just had to get a Ph.D. It was built into my system. So... Um, I guess I never really liked the PhD setup because I love learning about lots of different things. And I think you'll find out about Matt too, that one of the things I was really drawn towards Matt for is that, you know, he just love has all of these different interests. And I love that part of it. And if you go into a PhD program, you just are focused on one thing the whole mm. time. Um, and I hated it. When I first started the PhD program, hated it. And that's when I met this girl who I ended up dating, who turned out to be my wife. And it turned out she hated math also. She was a biologist, but she's like, oh, I don't like math either. So we're like, hey, let's get married. So we just, you know, that's how, that's how that relationship formed. And then later, a few years into my program, I started falling in love with math because I started doing my own math. So there's a huge difference between kind of reading on it and reading other people's work versus creating your own. And so at that point is when I just fell in love with what math was. So that that's my story from, you know, almost a kid to how math became a big, uh, big influence in my life. And it was around this time at, during graduate school that I met Matt. So Matt, do you want to jump in there? Yeah. Um, so I, I uh, grew up in, in North Georgia in a small rural area. My, my dad was an English teacher um, teaching at a, you know, a, a small college there. So um, I, I guess I've been around sort of colleges my whole life. Um, but uh, I, I grew up there. Uh, I went to University of Virginia as an undergrad and then and then to Johns Hopkins where I met Sethian in graduate school. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I can't really pinpoint exactly when I would say like I, I fell in love with math or anything like that. It was just always something I was interested in. But I was, like Sethian mentioned, I was interested in a lot of other things too. But math just ended up being the thing that I stuck with and pursued the farthest. Yeah, Matt and I have known each other for over 25 years. <laughs> just as, you know, when he, I was a few years ahead of him in graduate school, but basically I was his maturity level, if not lower. So I got to hang out with him and his crowd <laughs> for a long time. Mm -hmm. Matt, Matt, you know, he's like a, 
he plays classical guitar to a painter to, you know, a thousand other things that Matt does that he's being humble by not telling you about. But, um, and I think the way, even this book and how we became friends is kind of related to all that stuff is, is these kind of things in the margins that excite you about each other and, and how you want to bring that to, to mathematics into the world. Yeah, and this relates to my next question I wanted to ask about environment that uh, you were in. So, of course, uh, you found this excellent company, um, each other's company, really. But what about other other people? What about mentors? Did they help you to get where you are? Um, Matt, do you want to take this or do you, uh, I could run with it for a bit? Uh, um, yeah, sure. Uh, well, you know, I, I certainly have had lots of mentors and uh, people that have guided me um, and friends who have also guided me throughout. Uh, we, we, we both shared a, the, our, um, our thesis advisor, Jack Morava, who is very influential on both of us and sort of how we think about math. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but certainly also since then, you know, uh, my colleagues that I surround myself with, they, they sort of inform how I think about mathematical questions and stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that too, Jack. Uh, it's not only were we in graduate school together, but we had the same advisor. So that DNA about how we think is so much influenced by your graduate parent, right? Your 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 PhD advisor, whoever he or she may be. And um, so Matt and I kind of share that DNA a little bit. But I think overall, our interests you know are so varied that we've we've had different mentors in different ways. And I think more importantly too, we've also mentored other people. Just you know, being an advisor to students um, and to junior colleagues, you know, we're, we're, you know, at least I'm older and close to my death. You know, I see my grave in front of me, that kind of thing. So like, I know that I've seen all these other people kind of grow up over the years. And I think just like teaching, you learn so much about the subject when you actually start teaching. And you learn so much about uh, what it means to be taken care of when you start taking care of somebody else. So to me, that's what's, uh, it's been lovely for that, for that reason. And Part of this book is to kind of share our love for math and how we've not only taught students, but just different people in our lives and people who have no interest in even thinking about mathematics. So that that kind of mentorship really has influenced this. Excellent. So all of your deep expertise and your passion for the subject really manifested itself very, very well in this uh, your latest book, uh, Mac Merlin's Unsolved Mathematical Mysteries. So can you tell us what is it about? And how did you come to writing it? Um, let me take a crack first, Matt, and then you can yeah. you can tell all the place I've lied and correct my lies. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the I to me one of the big ideas that I've been thinking about is almost in every subject you could um, you could imagine, Galena. There's there's an excitement to be at the edge of knowledge, and if you think about biology. Or medicine, clearly, you know, in the COVID world today, to to try to cure COVID or its variants, to try to get that wonder drug or vaccine, or you know, even something lofty as curing all of cancer, you can get anyone excited about why the why biology is exci- you know, why biology is um, is something lovely to be studying at the edge of knowledge, right, right at the forefront of what's going on. And if you think about physics. You know, you think about black holes and you're huge, you know, traveling to Mars, right? And exploring that to the smallest quantum particles. And you could think about literature and and the new poems and the new, uh, you know, new works that are created all the time. Think about music and Beyonce and Adele and like amazing songs that are coming through. 
And then you think about math <laughs> and you mm-hmm. say, like, what, when you talk to the person on the street, the person who's at the coffee shop with you or at the pub, and you say, hey, what, are you excited about the frontiers of math? You know, most people would say things like Pythagorean theorem or quadratic formula or, you know, some things that they studied in, in you know, secondary school or, or college or something like this, where those, those ideas are thousands of years old. And so what's really going on, not just in the world in the past hundred years, but what's going on right now? You know, what are the unsolved puzzles? What are the things that mathematicians are excited about? Like what's great about math other than its applications? You know, people always think math is so useful in the world, but forget that. Just what is joyful about it? And so the goal was to think of something that would bring someone right to the edge of knowledge. Like right, anyone can pick up this book and taste what mathematicians are in love with. That was the idea that that I had way back when, and I shared it with Matt. And he thought it was he thought it was okay. <laughs> He's like, you know, let's try this thing. Let's figure out a way to do it. That's how the conversation first started. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, <laughs> uh, I didn't have a lot going on right then, so I was looking for an interesting project to work on. This sounded like an interesting one. Um, I think uh, Satyan's totally right. You know, the way that math is taught the way that we teach math is is sort of presenting these things as as tools uh and lots of times we forget like they they are tools but they were created to answer these questions and sometimes the questions that were the interesting thing that you know why these tools were developed that gets lost along the way i think that sort of takes a lot of the the joy out of it so um yeah so this book sort of just says, let's forget about the tools. Let's just look at some of these questions that are still hanging out there um, that, that we don't know how to solve um, and that we think we can explain in a way that would be accessible to anybody that's, that's, that's reading it, reading the book. Um, yeah. So, Galena, just to jump in there, the, you know, the way to do that was a huge struggle for us. You know, we had this idea of trying to bring people to the edge of knowledge. One of the reasons I, you know, clearly in my head was we have to make this visual. I love mm. to draw. I love to think. Uh, I, I work with artists um, and I try my best in my life to honor them. So I wanted, you know, math is usually thought of as a huge language barrier, right? There's like mathematical notation and symbolism and you know, derivatives and integrals and formulas and equations. People think of those words all the time about equations. I wanted to just get past it and get to the get to the beauty of it. So I wanted it, the book to be arresting, like beautifully arresting. And so I wanted to be visual. And there's only one person in the world I trust. I like to draw. People tell me I'm a good artist in the math world. But Matt is a fantastic. See, he's one of the few people in the world that I would that who would critique my work and say, no, that that just looks ugly. And uh, and he has that, you know, integrity. We've known each other for so long. He would just be straight up and honest with me. So I needed somebody else on my team that who can really, you know, banter with me and talk ideas through. And so that that's how we wanted this visual book. And we for, we had originally thought of almost a children's book like um I don't know if, if you know about like, you know, those chunky fat board books, you know, the, the, they're like really small and then you'd read yeah. small stories to maybe, you know, three-year-olds and they can kind of hold it in their hands or one-year-olds. And we wanted the book actually to to embody what what we're trying to say, which is anybody can have access to this. Like even little kids can play this game. Um, and so that's how the book originally came up in our heads, like the small board book. And that evolved into this book, which I think I think Matt and I would both agree is like a much better book. <laughs> and not only does it uh, give you 
the kind of these mysterious, beautiful questions people are asking, but it actually gives you a sneak behind the current state of affairs for them. So that's what it enabled you to do the way we did it. And um, I think it was an insight for Matt and, Matt and I to really wanted to, I think we worked really hard to connect these, uns, I think there are, Matt, are there six, I think there's 16 unsolved questions, unsolved yeah. puzzles and mysteries that we picked out of hundreds and hundreds. And, um, and we wanted it so that there's a theme that connected them all, that somehow you wouldn't think of each question as an unrelated one, but as part of a story. Because we realized that not only do you uh, do you, the audience of the world and I, do we think of things in terms of visual wonder, but we also love stories. Stories drive us as humans. Um, and so we wanted the collection to be a story of something. And so that that's how the background of some of these ideas came about. Well, I think you really succeeded in your noble quest here. So why did you pick this theme of magic? Yeah, Matt, do you want to try that? <laughs> Well, yeah, I can, I can, I can remember one of the things that um, that you told me, like sort of very early on, was like we shouldn't always refer to these things as problems. You know, we're going to solve a math problem um, because it sort of suggests there's like something wrong, um, and instead, you know, we can use something that's more sort of um, uh, open-ended. You know, mystery or uh, ma you know, magic and and then that sort of whole theme sort of began to pervade through it. Um, and then on the the other side of things is we, a lot of these a lot of these problems uh, mysteries <laughs> involve these like massive numbers. And so we wanted to sort of make it clear this is not something like you know when we talk about an army with soldiers in it, we're not talking about well you can't have more than ten thousand soldiers or whatever like that. We wanted to imply that hey look these could be um, just magically large. Uh, and so that sort of played into it as well. Yeah, we were trying to, as we connected these problems together, we realized that, um, you know, we needed, exactly as Matt is saying, we needed situations which was just ridiculous, like idiotic. And so we wanted a place where you could be an idiot, like where it could just be, you know, silly. And so we had to not, we had to not, we had to not live in reality, but step out of reality. And one of my colleagues, I think, in, in a, again, this goes back to our earlier conversation, Galina, like we're friends of ours, we're sitting at a conference and, uh, you know, we just, a few of us were having coffee together and, and one person said, you know, if you're thinking about magic, why not Merlin? And that was it. It was just, again, a small conversation that happened over coffee as humans, right? Rather than a Zoom call, rather than an email, because I would never had the energy or the time or the audacity to email my friends and say, hey, what do you think of this? But over coffee, it's a very simple thing to do. Hey, I'm thinking about this book and I'm thinking about this idea. We're trying to connect it together. And he said, why not Merlin? It's, and the moment he said it, it was a perfect fit because Merlin is such a famous character along with you know, the Knights of Camelot and Guinevere and that whole story behind it that we thought it's, it, people know it enough, but at the same time, it's not so richly developed that we can kind of make up these adventures of what's going on there. So that's, that's how that came about. So as we, as we that, start... We... Yeah, go on. I was going to say before that we had just sort of like these generic king and queen and knights and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but somehow, like as soon as we brought in the Merlin aspect of it, it just sort of gave us a whole um, sort of uh, much richer world without us having to, to sort of take the time to create it. Yeah. So as we start our journey in the beginning, can you tell us a little bit more who is our guide? 
Yeah, let me let me start with that. You know, again, when we think about mathematics and maths in the world today, and sciences even, and engineering, you know, it's so dominated by by men over the years. And one of the again main reasons we wrote this book is to allow anyone to have access to amazing mathematics. Um, anyone can play the game. That's what Matt and I were thinking about. And if you think about the story, uh, Galena, just for a second about Merlin, and just write down the names of characters. <laughs> They're all men, right? Merlin mm-hmm. is a man, like this magician. And then there's you know the knights of the round table, King Arthur. You, know, you could just kind of like label the knights Lancelot and all that stuff. And then there's Guinevere, who's you know, Arthur's bride, the queen. But really, there are no other female lead characters. Um, and so maybe there might be one or two kind of hanging in the back. But so we wanted the story about Merlin to be important. But at the same time, we wanted the, the lead to be a woman. And the person we really wanted to honor was... Um, this woman, Miriam Merzakani, who was an Iranian mathematician, the only woman in the history of the world to win the Fields Medal. The Fields Medal is sort of the Nobel Prize in mathematics. And it's amazing that in the history of that uh, long and prestigious award, probably the, the most significant award in the mathematics community given every four, every once every four years, that no woman has ever won it till Miriam. And she won it at the age, I believe, of 30, um, 38 or 39, and then she passed away uh, just a year later. And so it's tragic, but we kind of wanted to honor who she is as a woman. So our main uh, character, who's the guide for this whole story, is uh, is her her name is Miriam. And we actually asked her um, her family if we can use her name to honor her this way. And they said, they said sure. So we were just really excited. So the framing of the book uh, is, is as follows. Um, Miriam... Miriam's grandmother gives her a journal of Merlin and says, not only is Merlin real, but you're actually related to Merlin. <laughs> and she finds this idiotic. Like, are you, what do you mean? You know, he's real and I'm related to him. But she takes this journal and looks through it. And it turns out that her mother had, uh, her grandmother and mom had read stories from this journal since she was a kid. And that's why she became a mathematician because of these kind of puzzles that she's always had in her background in her life. And as she kind of reads these stories, she becomes the guide. So she, in this book, one page is kind of devoted to Miriam setting up the story for us, kind of what it is as mathematicians, what we think about, whether it's, you know, numbers or whether it's connected dots with lines or how to draw boxes, just really simple things. And then you open the page and you have this beautiful two-page spread of an actual page from Merlin's journal. And I don't know if uh, if you or your audience know who MacGyver is, but in America, MacGyver is a person who is, you know, a character from the 80s and 90s who's uh, a television character who's called to solve puzzles in the world that nobody else can solve. You know, go and go and stop this nuclear explosion from happening and you have a toothpick and three toothbrushes, you know, Mm. some ridiculous thing like this. Right. And so Merlin is equivalent to MacGyver in the in the world of Camelot for us. So Merlin has been called to solve all of these puzzles that the Knights of the Round Table and King Arthur and Queen Guinevere have in their lives. And he solves many, many of them. In fact, he solves almost all of them, but there's a handful that he's unable to solve. And he writes those in his journal. And the entire book is about those failures of Merlin. You know, I tried to do this, but I couldn't figure out how to set up these 10 tents 
so that the celebration can take place. I don't know how to cut this cake the proper way. And it's just these handful of, of his failures of attempts to do what he was asked to do, that he couldn't do it. And Miriam Mirzakhani, like at least the, that character that we're trying to honor, is walking us through those things. So you see her introducing it. You see this two-page spread of Merlin's actual journal. And then Miriam then comes back at the end of that journal at the next two-page and says the state of the art of mathematics. And she says, hey, actually, this problem that you just heard about cake cutting, it's just related to the distribution of numbers and let me give you what the current state of the art is about what's going on and how we've approached it. So that that's the way the, the book overall looks like. Yes, it's a definitely a really beautiful tribute uh, to her. And uh, just to follow up on something that, that you said, uh, Sethian, earlier on, the yeah. choice of this theme is uh, really spot on. So, mag oh, I'm so glad. And magic, and especially for people who, like me, like fans of D&D, &D, you know, and all the quests, it just it just works perfectly. Oh, I'm so glad. That's just great for us to hear. I think we're trying to get people. You're a nerdy person. That's wonderful. But you're not. Your focus isn't in mathematics. And we just want to. You know, we. I think Matt and I. You could jump in too, Matt, and kind of fill in anything I missed. But you know, Matt and I were just really excited about how it is we can think of this book as a gift that you can give to people, whether it's your grandparents or your cousins or nephews or nieces or your students. Just Somebody to say, you know, if you want to taste current, you know, the state of the art ideas, here's just a fun way of just fooling around with it. And hopefully, in a very physical way, you could take out a piece of paper and draw things and try to figure it out. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a little bit more cynical and less positive than Sethian is. So, <laughs> you know, I was always wondering, like, you know, we, we have these ideas and we like them. Is anybody else going to like them? eat, you know, the way we do and the way we're presenting them. So it's, it's wonderful here to hear you say that, to say that. That's really, really interesting because, yeah, so so this book, what happened, I read this book in two hours, like literally just <laughs> yes. swallowed it. But yes. then I was obsessing over it for the next <laughs> two weeks. So really, it's, it's just really beautiful that you get this intuitive understanding of maths through, um, through, uh, different explanations. So the way that you arrive to the realization of the problems and how they're framed is much more easy to understand and much more approachable. Mm. So maybe we can talk about about a few of these mysteries that yeah. you feature in your book. So can yeah. you tell me maybe about a couple of them which you really, really like? Matt, do you want to start, man? And... Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I like the there's a lot of them that I like, but um, uh, for instance, one I like is um, a, a problem or a mystery of um, arranging tents of different heights. Um, the, the basic problem is that uh, these tents are, are connected by this network of, of streamers, and you want to num have the tents at different heights so that, um, that the, the amount of decrease going from one to another along the streamers uh, runs through all the, so you have tens of heights, like say, for instance, one through 16, uh, and then you have streamers that are covering those distances of one through 15. Um, uh, this is the mathematical problem called the perfect tree conjecture. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's just a, a really fun problem because uh, you can just draw a little, a little network like, 
like the ones we have in the book and try it, try it for yourself. Can I number these so that I get all the different heights, one through 16, and then all the different drops or descents, one through 15, um, but by just sort of playing around and rearranging the numbers. So it's a fun puzzle. Yeah, we want we wanted all of these puzzles, at least as much as possible, you know, out of the hundreds of exciting unsolved math problems that we thought were accessible, we picked these handful on a very intentional purpose as things that you can start playing with immediately. I know there are many problems that are related to fourth dimension and 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 you know high dimension like third dimensional manipulation. We purposely avoided it because there's some people who find it difficult to think in 3D and manipulate things in 3D. But you know, on a two dimensional piece of paper, we can. We've all done that. We've all taken pieces of paper and drawn things on it. So I think Matt and I were very conscious of you know when he said you know why don't you just put a bunch of 16 dots on there and then connect it with lines so that each line is you know related to those dots in some way and you just sit there and just play with that puzzle. My one of my favorite ones, uh, probably of all time is the very first one. I think it's the silliest, most idiotic thing ever, which is somebody gives you a square, a two by two, you know, two feet by two feet square. And the question is, how many one by one tiles can you use to completely cover it? Now, the rules are you can rotate the tile and you can overlap the tiles, but you cannot break the tiles. So if you think of a two by two square, you know, you could fit exactly four one by one squares and it beautifully covers it. Um, awesome. Mm-hmm. Now, the, now the question is, what if it's like two by two, but each height and width has, is just increased just microscopic. So 2.00001 by 2.0001, just the smallest little fraction. Um, and if you, if you think about this just for a second, you know, like, you know, the, the four one by ones, if you cover it, you can have this little hairline crack at the bottom and on the side that light's going to come out of. So you won't fully cover it. And so the mm-hmm. question is, how many squares do you need to do this? And of course, you could, you know, if you, you could use 16 squares and it does it. You could just overlap them easily and 15 squares and 14 squares. And the question is, can you do this with eight squares? And the answer is yes. Can you do this with five? And there's a beautiful result in math, actually not too difficult, that says, no, five's not enough. And can you do it with seven? And the answer is yes. And then the unsolved question that no human in the universe knows <laughs> is whether six is enough. So that's, to me, I find it ridiculous that the edge of mathematical knowledge, the greatest mathematical minds and the greatest scientific minds cannot figure out whether six squares is enough to cover a 2.01 by 2.01 squares. It's totally silly and it makes me realize that we're idiots like mathematics is an inf- it's, it's in its infancy we as humans know so little and i know this might be a very weird thing to say but one of the things i'm really excited about the book is when people come and read the book and they say you know before they even read the book they say you know i'm i'm really not good at maths like it's that's not what i do i'm an artist i'm a musician i'm a philosopher i'm a i'm a chef but I, but math i'm not good at it and i one of the goals of this book is to say, yes, we agree with you. You are not good at math. You are really bad at math. But to come alongside them and also to say, but so is everybody else. Like mm. any mathematician who's ever lived is also bad at math because we don't know how to, how to figure out what to do with six squares. Like nobody knows how to do this thing. It's, we're all chi- children when it comes to these questions of mathematics. And so the fact you're dealing with unsolved questions, I love the fact, Galena, you said like you spent, you know, a couple of weeks just thinking about these things because 
you realize you're not that good at figuring it out, but then you soon realize no one else is. And then you're basically mm-hmm. playing the same game everybody else is playing. You know, you're in an even playing field. It's not that I know an answer that's in the back of the book and, and you need to work hard to be like me. It's that you and I are now equals. And you're equal to any mathematician who's ever lived because nobody knows how to figure it out. And I love that joyfulness of it, that kind of you're like shoulder to shoulder thinking about this problem together. Um, and going back to what Matt said very early on, he said, you know, math- mathematicians think of many, other people think of mathematics as tools created to do things. But once you start thinking about a problem and fall in love with it, you realize what are the tools? And then you then you care about tools. Then you care about algebra and trigonometry and calculus and other things, which to me aren't exciting. It's these questions that drive everything. And then you could learn about the tools later to try to see if you can, you know, help you understand these solutions to these things more most of these problems have been around for a long time so you know if there's an existing tool that would work to crack them it probably would have already been done so in some sense mm. the tools that we talk about aren't really sufficient for answering these questions or at least as, as we know how to use them yeah the idea of uh, my dream is that some of these problems get solved from people in very different disciplines you know, somebody who's in biology who loves biological ideas or somebody who loves, um, who loves psychology or somebody who's a historian or somebody who's an anthropologist or an artist or musician goes, hey, you know what, this, what about, have you tried it this way before? And, you know, Matt and I, we've been trained, not only are we trained as mathematicians, but unfortunately, Matt and I, or fortunately, have been trained by the same advisor, right? So we have that DNA, the way we think about mathematics is quite similar because we've been trained under the same mentor. And so it'll be wonderfully refreshing to say, well, the reason some of these problems haven't been figured out is because math is kind of inbred, right? Like you, other math mentors train math students to become math mentors and vice versa. But what if you just have a fresh look at an artist thinking about this, somebody who thinks visually all the time, what if they take a crack at these problems that are visual? And this access to giving them ideas at the edge of knowledge that's the joy, is to say what they can do with it. That's an excellent point. Uh, um, the way you sort of lay out all of these uh, uh, mysteries in, in the book, they're really easy to compre- comprehend. But as you say, mm. they're obviously they're very hard to solve. But uh, I suppose we all approach it in different ways. So from my perspective as a molecular biologist, we think in 3D and also 4D, mm-hmm. including time. So for me, it's never enough. You know, 2D is not enough. And uh, <laughs> like with the first problem that you said about the tiles, yes. I need third dimension to to solve it. But also on another point, there's something about this being in this beautiful state of engaged mind when you start thinking about these problems on your own terms. So mm-hmm. do you think that that's also a very big point um, of even writing this book, really, just to really get people into that state of a state of mind. Yeah, I'll start, I'll, I'll say that I'll start jumping in and Matt jump in too. But um, one of the goals of most mathematics research is really not about solving the research, but asking the right questions. Mm. To me, and as, as you know, this, as a molecular biologist, like if you ask the right questions, it opens the right doors. And so, so to us, these questions are not the point to, to these questions are the beginning of an adventure, right? So as you, as you start thinking about some of these, how these tiles work, you know, after a while you will get frustrated and say, okay, I don't know how to figure this out, but 
Hmm. But this kind of reminds maybe maybe what if I use triangles instead of squares? You know, is there a similar problem? Or, you know, as you're saying, I loved what you said, Galena, like I, I think in three dimensions. So why not think about cubes instead of squares, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the right way that, that you can actually pick up cubes that you could find in your home, like dice that you can play with or, you know, little simple Lego blocks that, you know, that you could take and ask a similar question and say, hey, well, what happens if they are Lego blocks where you can only stack them one way, but they don't fit the other way? And all of a sudden, you're you're exploring and thinking about all of these other questions that are that are motivated and related to this one. But to me, that's the joy. That's the ownership. That's what happened to me in grad school. The first few years of grad school was me thinking about questions that other people thought about. But then, you know how my wife feels betrayed of now liking math when I told her I wouldn't. It's like I love math because then I was able to own my own questions. And that's our hope for this, is, is this book, is not only are you less intimidated by mathematics because we've removed the notation, we've removed symbolism and equations and all those stumbling blocks that people might have a bad taste in their mouth from, from encountering math rather than seeing its beauty. But we would love exactly what you said after a few weeks of playing with some of these things that you take ownership of it. That this becomes your baby, this becomes your problem, and not the way we phrased it, but maybe an equivalent problem that you think is more exciting, that you you kind of have a joy about. I, I had a a colleague that I worked with who who said uh, when he was a student, if he if he couldn't figure out a problem, you know, he just got it wrong, and that was that was frustrating. And the best thing about becoming a teacher is if he couldn't figure out a problem, he just changed the problem to something else. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. So even though uh, really solving of some of these problems may not be the uh, the point of the book, but some of them have been solved, have they? So maybe can you describe a couple of, or uh, can just describe which ones have been solved and how did they arrive to that? Um, for these ones in the book, none of I think none of them have been solved. So all of them are absolute open problems as of today, but they have been, they're based on other problems that have been solved. So mm. for example, in um, in one of the problems, I think, gosh, Matt, I'm trying to think of the, the 33 trees one, right? So there's a, there's a classic idea from the early 1900s or the 1930s that if you have a bunch of points on the, on, on, on a chalkboard or a bunch of rocks on the floor or points on a piece of paper, the question is: Can you are, can you always find polygons that are whose corners are those points? Nice, beautiful convex polygons whose corners are those points. And the answer is known that you could always find pentagons if you know you have this many points, and you can always find uh, six sided hexagons if you know you have this many points. But what's unsolved? is the current state of affairs. If you have 33 points, can you always guarantee you can always have seven-sided polygons? So Galina, like there have been solutions on certain cases. For example, for the square that I told you about earlier, if you have um, a two by two square, a little bit bigger than a two by two square, we know that not uh, five squares is not enough and that has been solved. But the real mystery about whether six is enough hasn't been solved. So none of these questions that I know of at least have been have been solved at all. Um, Matt, do you want to jump in, man? Yeah, I was thinking um, the one with the Penrose tiles, it, there's mm. there's mm-hmm. some there's some result that's close to a solution to that, but I, I can't remember exactly what the technical thing is that is not quite solved as we phrase it. I think 
And I think, yeah, I think to be connected or something. Yeah, I think same thing for the mirrored room. The question is, if if somebody gives you a room, like a, like a floor plan of an art gallery, some crazy floor plan as crazy as you want, and the walls are all lined with mirrors, is it possible to find some spot in the room and light a match that lights the entire room from the light just reflecting around the mirrors of that room? And very special cases of those things have been solved, uh, but not the general idea. And I think going back to your point, Kalina, about what the point of these, you know, what the point of this book is, is is not really to me is not really to solve these things, mm. um, but to get a taste. You know, I I think of it as as in a, in I know in America this is true, but if you go to an ice cream shop, one of my favorite things in the world is ice cream. If you go to an ice cream store, sometimes they they allow you to taste the flavors before you choose which scoop you want. You know, they just like, okay, you could taste these few, a uh, few of them and you could say, oh, I, I like the strawberry. And they give you a very small spoon, like very small spoon and a very small scoop. And then you could like taste it and they go, okay, I, no, I do like the butter pecan. And then you get a scoop of it. And that's to me what this book is about. It's a small taster of things you've never tasted before. And it's a book of encouragement <laughs> to say that other people, uh, you know, nobody is able to figure out these puzzles, these puzzles yet too. And hopefully that taste leads to some other adventures of how you even think about map, how you can how you can share that excitement about now this is what math is about to the next generation or to the generation around you. So we we want we're very at least I'm very ambitious. I not not I want the book to transform the world, but I would love for its effects not to be about solving problems, but to be about viewing mathematics differently, to fall in love with her again rather than to view math as something that was a stumbling block in our lives. And Matt, do you have uh, anything to add? I, I think I think Sethian says it really well. Um, yeah. Excellent. So if you're given an oracle, and let's say that somebody actually has solved maybe one or two of your <laughs> mysteries, and if you would just look into the future, what do you think it could mean in terms of new technologies or development? Because it's really interesting to imagine what could could be when we solve, you know, some of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, in a funny way, I and mean, this might sound more foolish too, but usually, to me, when we solve a problem, we. Th- in, in one sense, it feels like uh, we did it, right? You know, that, that's the main goal. But, but if you solve a problem, usually what happens is that 10 new questions are asked that you never mm-hmm. thought about before. And the more you solve things, <laughs> the more the world of questions increases. So if you solve a problem, you get 10 new questions. You solve another one, you get 10. So exponentially, your, the mystery of, of the world exponentially increases. Each time you solve something, there's a tenfold increase in the mystery. And to me, there's a joy of exploration. One of my favorite movies is um, Ratatouille, which is you know a Pixar Disney movie directed by one of my favorite directors of all time, Brad Bird. And it's basically a rat uh, who loves to cook. And he's you know this one rat is trying to explain to his his brother how how food works from the perspective of a chef in his mind. And he says, you know, try to eat the strawberry, and now eat this piece of cheese. And now eat both together. And he says, do you see how different the com- the combined flavors are than them individually? Like you get this new taste that never existed before. 
because now you have strawberry and cheese put together and there's this new creation. And then he says something that's remarkable. He says, now imagine every food and every combination. And can you imagine that infinite possibilities? And to mm. me, that's when I, that's what I think of when I think of solutions is the, if somebody introduces this new food, you don't think of it as, oh my gosh, I've now solved this thing. You say, what can I do with that new food? Wow. The, now that's part of this puzzle of how many new combinations you can have. So in one sense, every solution to this book, as Matt said, you know, will require some tools to figure it out. But Kalina, those tools, they're not, although they were created for this problem, they're probably going to be used in several problems we don't even know about yet. And if you think about you know, the development of a hammer, you could say, oh, this hammer was useful to pound this thing in here to build my house. But gosh, that hammer was also useful to build the ship and useful you know, to build a bridge and useful to build a road. And you don't realize that there was a ship or a road or a bridge to have had you not first built this house. So it's just the beginning of the purpose of all those tools, which again, those tools lead to lots of other problems. So to me, the joy of playfulness, the joy of being in the unknown, and the joy of creating, which I think you can connect that to any field. You can think of it as an artist, as how an artist thinks about unknown things, thinks about creation, thinks about what they can do. And then once they do this, they go, oh my gosh, well, that idea was lovely. I wonder if I can create other artworks related to it. If you think about Rothko, like the paintings of Rothko, they're just remarkable, but there's a lot of similarities between them. You know, he has this way of viewing things. If you think about John Coltrane as a jazz musician, you know, you could think of the similarities in the DNA of how they make one album sound very different, but at the same time, you know, it's Coltrane's genius. So that that's kind of the ideas of of how these mysteries can lead to tools, which can lead to things that can transform the world, but really give us new mysteries again. Yeah, I think for me, like the, the mathematical example that always comes that comes to mind most most obvious one is calculus. You know, uh, d- developed because you know Newton and others had certain basic questions about physics, um, but mm. now calculus pervades like all the sciences um, a- as a you know essential tool. So um, I think it would be the same thing with these kinds of problems. Like Sethian said, it will be uh, the value is. In, in the most part, these are kind of uh, idiosyncratic questions. Uh, so, you know, there's value to solving them, but the tools that would be developed in the process uh, and sort of most likely sort of the greater understanding of how different aspects of math are connected together, that would be the, the really valuable thing. Yeah, just to jump in there too, Galena, it's like, you know, when I think one of my favorite things to do also is Legos, and I've mentioned this already, but you know, when you buy a, a, a Lego set, it comes with instructions on how to build a car, right? Say you buy a Lego set for a car. Mm. Um, well, that's great. But the real joy of Legos is not building the car. I mean, it's fun to build a car and follow the instructions and you know, kind of find out how remarkable and beautiful and elegant the gears and pistons are that the engineers have developed. But really, it's to break that apart and build whatever you want again. And that's what we wanted for mathematics. Most of the time in class and sitting in school, sitting in education, people keep teaching you mathematics as following instructions. You know, Einstein did this, Newton did this, Pythagoras did this. And like, so you should do this thing. Follow these rules, make this Lego set. Here's how the car looks, great. Now in the next class, we're gonna make a different Lego set about a plane. And then in trigonometry, we're going to learn a Lego set about a building. And 
gosh, that's fine. Okay, it's useful tools. But don't you just want to break the Legos and then build your own thing? That's what mathematicians care about. We don't we don't fall in love with trigonometry because Pythagoras did it. We think they're beautiful things. I think Matt and I would both agree Pythagorean theorem and calculus and Gauss Bonnet, my favorite theorem in the world. Like these are all beautiful things in the world. But gosh, I don't do math because I want to watch somebody else do theorems. I want to play with Legos. <laughs> I want to play with my own Legos. I want to create silly, idiotic, foolish things with those Legos that aren't as beautiful as those Lego sets, but still mine. And the book allows you to try that. Hey, here's a bunch of things of Lego things that actually don't have instructions. <laughs> they're just pieces and they're thinking, can you do this with it? Nobody knows if you can and come play with them. That's what I love about it. I, I want to tell a story about Sethian. Um, I don't know. Do you remember uh, we met up one time, uh, our families met up in Roanoke yes. uh, for like about, and uh, so <clears throat> in Virginia, I had, yeah, I had yeah. my, uh, I had my son with me. He was like, I don't know, about five or six at the time. Uh, and so we, we stayed at a hotel and uh, Sethian came over and we were talking and my son was getting ready to go to bed. And, and so uh, he asked if, if Sethian would read a book to him. Do you remember this? I don't remember this. Okay. So it was like, um, I think it was like where the wild things are or oh, something. Oh, yeah, like yeah. That. Oh, you I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and you got like about, I don't know, a third of the way through it reading it and then you just started like making up stuff based off the pictures <laughs> um, and I th I, that i just always remember that whenever you talk about like you know i always want to create my own stuff is that <laughs> that, <laughs> that you ended up just sort of riffing on that that mm. read through of that book mm. sort of encapsulates i think everything you're talking about here yeah so galena i also want to add by saying that this kind of a riff would frustrate my wife, who's not in this conversation at all. <laughs> because, you know, the way she's wired is there's a certain way to do things well and to do things right. And clearly the person who wrote the book, Where the Wild Things Are, uh, has thought clearly about the way the storyline should go. Um, and so I think there's nothing wrong with actually following a set of those instructions because the resulting car that you get from the Legos is beautiful. It's actually thought through. It's actually really well done. And there's nothing wrong with learning that. But gosh, after you do that, let's start playing. Um, and so I've read the, Where the Wild Things Are so many times that I just, I remember now. <laughs> I was like, hey, let's, you know, I know, I know Owen has this, this story he could read, but gosh, let's give another one. It's probably going to be far more stupid, <laughs> more stupid than that one because it's not well thought out. I was just making it up on my own. Um, but yeah, that playfulness is the joy. And I think in many subjects, that joy is accessible to students. In chemistry, you know, you can like mix, mix chemicals and just try different things. And in biology, you can look at microscopes and look at creatures that you find on the dirt or on plants. But in math, man, it's just so frustrating that you, students aren't allowed to play in mathematics, but yet mathematics is the queen of the sciences, you know, the undergirding foundation of technology and science today and we can't play. So how can you do that? How can you allow people to play? And this book is an attempt to bring people to that, to that chance of playfulness. Yes, for sure. And I think you have achieved this uh, very well in this book, breaking the misconceptions that maths, math does not really allow for creativity, but you show the complete opposite that maths actually requires your individuality, your own approach to solving and framing the, uh, the problems and mysteries. Hmm. 
so what discoveries along your journey to writing this book, uh, Mag Merlin's Unsol Unsolved Mathematical Mysteries, surprised you the most? Hmm. Matt, do you know, man? Um, no, I, a lot of these problems I, I didn't know about. I think you really brought most of the problems. And so a lot of them I, I didn't know about before I started working on this. So just to um, just to be exposed to some of them and, you know, um, some of them were just fun to play with. Yeah. Uh, I mm. can't say that I really figured out anything profound in any of them uh, other than, you know, knowing how this sort of basically worked as a question. But um, but I did have a lot of fun just sort of playing and sort of uh, trying to work out for some of the pictures. You know, one, one thing we were committed to was to to being accurate in what we said. So mm -hmm. the pictures, we wanted the pictures, if we said we were dividing something into three pieces with equal perimeter, um, we wanted the three pieces to have equal perimeter. And so the little, just little puzzles like that ended up being, uh, you know, challenging and fun. Yeah, I think going back to almost all the drawings in this book were done by Matt. You know, as uh, he used Adobe Illustrator, but it's like, it looks like a lovely painting in some sense, you know, this classical, elegant kind of painting. And um, and Matt is obsessed with details. Like he wants to make sure it's done well. And I like the done well part, but the details, you know, I'm like, ah, you know, they'll figure it out. He's like, no, 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 we got to do this right. So even mm -hmm. the even the puzzle he t he said earlier about tenths and you know just dots connecting you know one through sixteen connecting fifteen lines or something, you know, those actually just to create some of those, not even on a computer, just like on a sheet of paper with dots and lines, is really difficult. You realize that. Wow, it's not just—it's not easy to randomly put these numbers and connect them up. There's some. This is why these problems are—they're hard. Just to draw simple examples of 16 dots, or you know, 10 dots, or 12 dots is really difficult to do, and how to connect them up. So I think Matt actually was far more invested in many of these problems. Um, you know, in terms of as an artist, you're thinking about the best way to like visually present them. My favorite, I mean, the thing I learned the most, my favorite part was probably the first problem, which I told you about tiling the squares, which I found is remarkable. And then the very last one, and I didn't realize this, the last problem I've heard about before, it's called 3n plus 1. There, there are lots of names for this, um, Colat's conjecture and all that stuff, but it's, it's really, really quite simple, Galena. It just basically says, I have a machine that does one of two things. If you give me a number, an even number, this machine just divides it by two. So if you give me like 16, it gives you eight in return. And if you give me an odd number, it makes it even. And the way it's going to make it even, it, it doesn't, like if you give me seven, it doesn't make it even by making it eight. It does this funny thing. It multiplies your number by three. So seven times three is 21. That's still even. I mean, sorry, that's still odd because seven is odd and three is odd. So 20, and then it adds one. So if you give me seven, it's seven times three is 21 plus one is 22. That's it. That's all it is. If you give me an even number, mm. it cuts it in half. If you give me an odd number, it multiplies by three and add one and makes it even. And then the question is, if you keep using your number in this machine over and over again, where, where does, does that number go? For example, seven, if you plug in seven, it becomes 22, but 22 half of 22 is 11 because it's even 11 times three is 33 plus one is 34, half of 34. And then you kind of keep putting this number, you iterate this number over and over again. And the conjecture, the belief is that every whole number in the world will eventually come back to the number one. It's just going to just land at the number one. And I thought, okay, that's a, that's a cool problem. I didn't know it was unsolved. Great. I've, I've heard about this thing. So we put that in the book. And then as we did research to know what Miriam, Miriam Marzakani, as our kind of our guide would say more about this problem, 
it turned out that some of the greatest mathematicians say this problem, which is from the 20, you know, 20th and 21st century, really belongs in the 22nd century. It's like a problem that's 100 years in the future that we're kind of getting a glimpse of, right? Like you asked the question, I think, about you know, if you're given an oracle, what do you see in the future? I think mathematicians believe even the problem itself is a future problem that we that we kind of accidentally landed in our laps. Like we have no clue where to even begin, which again makes me realize mathematicians aren't smart. I mean, math is so beautiful that we don't we don't get it yet because this whole thing is about just even numbers dividing by two and odd numbers multiplying by three and adding one. And here you are at a mystery that is actually from the 22nd century. It's amazing. So to me, that's what surprised me the most is um, kind of the power of these unsolved problems and the simplicity of them and how it takes you to, you know, to, to a century away from where we are. That's absolutely mind boggling. Mm -hmm. So how many puzzles have you attempted to solve yourself? And how many pots of coffee did that involve? <laughs> uh, I think, Matt, you're the faithful one. I think you've attempted many of these things as you kind of work through many examples, right? Yeah, but I would not say that I, I really ever believed I was going to solve any of them. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, I the, think the tent, the tent problem, actually, now that I, now that I remember, um, the, the, for the picture that we had in the book, I sort of started off by trying to sort of figure it out, how to number it on paper. And after a bunch of erasing, I gave up and just wrote a computer program to do it. Mm -hmm. so, you know, but I mean, so that was a, a suggestion of how complicated that one would be to, to, to do. Like I couldn't even figure out the one example that I had set out for myself. Um, yeah. And, and just to interrupt know, Matt and talk about the computer program, I think many, many times people I talk to, in, including listeners would say, why don't you just do exactly what Matt did? You know, if you want to solve this thing, why don't you just write a computer program to do this thing? Mm -hmm. That's a very fair answer because Matt did. So the question is, you know, if you have these 16 dots and connected by lines, can you do that? Well, Matt couldn't do it easily, so he wrote a computer program that did it. Great. But the unsolved question, I think, Matt, right, is like, can you do this for instead of 16 dots, can you do it for 100 dots? Yeah. And you could try to write a computer program. The problem is the combinations that it would take to try to figure that out is unimaginable. And mm. so that's the problem at limitations on one end. The limitations on the other end is what is about this 3n plus 1 thing that I told you about, you know, even numbers and odd numbers is you need to either show that there's a number out there that fails, that in other words, either that does not go to one, that goes somewhere else or starts, you know, maybe maybe the number kind of forms a loop around 3, 8, 12, 3, 8, 12, and it never gets to one, or you need to show every number works. But gosh, how do you show that every number works? You have to try every number and no computer, I mean, gosh, 30 million sounds big to us, but it's trivial compared to infinite. 300 quadrillion with a trillion zeros sounds big to us, but compared to the infinite, it's nothing. So then, mm. you to, and again, computers are finite creatures. They need finite time to give you finite solutions. And so how do we handle infinity? You can't, you need some other way to do this. So computers can absolutely give you a glimpse of how solutions might work or help you pave the way to examples towards the bigger idea. But the solution itself is beyond the realm of a computer because it's beyond the realm of us so far, and we are coding. <laughs> so it has kind of helped Matt 
at least for that 16 case, to do this crazy computation. But for the 100 case, it's beyond our reach right now. There's something reassuring in it, uh, really thinking that computers cannot solve uh, these problems. So maybe we will be the ones before yes. them to solve them. Yes. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what would be your next project? Actually, interestingly, Matt and I, and I don't think we've worked on a problem or a paper together, Matt, have we? Um, other than this book, I mean, we've known each other for 25 years. We've done our own research in different ways and our own interests, although they were a little related. But one of the problems in this book, an unsolved problem, uh, Matt and I are actually working on it. <laughs> and, mm. Except that the interesting thing is we're not actually working on this particular problem. This problem has to do something really simple, Galina, which is if you take um, a, a box, just like a cube, and imagine you have a, um, a knife that you can cut along the edge of the cube, can you lay this box flat? Can you cut along some of the edges and open up the cube and lay it flat on the floor so that the pieces are still connected, but it lays flat? And if you think about it, you can do it. It'll form the shape of a cross where the mm. four flaps of the cross, you know, fold up. And then the longer part of the cross, you know, folds at the top and the cube kind of unfolds into a cross and you can refold into a cube. And the question is, my favorite question of all time, 500 years old, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because of this question that I loved. It's from Albrecht Durer, um, Renaissance superstar. And he asked the question, can you do this for any shaped box in some sense? Can, instead of just a cube, can you do it for any other shaped box? And no one knows whether it, it, it exists for all time for all these different mm. boxes. Um, everything we try works, but we don't know why it's working. But what Matt and I decided to do was go in higher dimensions. So clearly the three-dimensional box, which is the big mystery in this book, is is unsolved but what if you go into 4d or 5d or 60 in some sense it might feel like it's getting more complicated but matt and i are working on unfolding boxes in higher dimensions with very specific kinds of boxes and for cubes it turns out that you could always do this for uh higher dimensional versions of tetrahedron um things that are just have four-sided dice you turns out you could always do this thing but for octahedra something that has those eight sides with, uh, with triangular shapes and eight-sided dice, it turns out in higher dimensions, it doesn't work. For 4D, it works. Matt was able to show that for 4D, but for 5D up to 500, I think Matt, Matt has just run a little program to do this thing. Based on some of the ideas that I had from previous years, Matt and I are able to show now that it, you can't always make these boxes fold in every possible configuration you want. So there it is, a taste of knowledge that we're fooling around with, our current project that we're writing up right now that's related to one of these questions. It's really cool. So basically, description of your job is solving mysteries. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. That's what mathematicians do. And, we, and also, unfortunately, we also create mysteries. That's the joy, too. Every solution <laughs> leads to these new puzzles. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? I think about our personal work, Matt and I both have a, a, a personal web websites and you can kind of fool around with the stuff we've done um, in, in different ways. I think, I, I don't know about Matt, but I have very little, if, if any, social media presence, very much on purpose because I want to live a, a very embodied life <laughs> that's, that's very physical. I want to enjoy my life as a one person. I know if I start having Facebook or Instagram, then all of a sudden I feel like there's another person I need to kind of take care of, my social self. So 
I personally have tried to work hard to do that. But any information about the projects and the artwork and the paintings and the and the different uh, research we've done, you could find on our websites. Um, but I think the book is is available in independent bookstores to Amazon to Barnes and Noble or um, yeah any 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 good. Um, book distributor would be, uh, would be great to have. And I think the paperback version of the book is coming out soon too. So I think that's kind of uh, lovely and encouraging for us to have. Excellent. Well, thanks, uh, thanks to both of you for joining me today and for such a stimulating discussion. Galina, thank you so much. That's such a joy. Thank you. Thank you.